So one of my favorite podcasters, Tim Ferriss, he's not a health guy. He's a kind of lifestyle design, financial freedom, really famous guy. You guys have probably heard of him. And it's amazing to me that you can just listen to somebody's podcast for free, right? I can just get on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Yesterday, I had to drive eight hours and consume this amazing information for free while I'm driving. So it's not even really taking me any more time. But he has this one concept that, and he has a lot of profound concepts, but this one concept I think is super applicable to mold avoidance, as well as to the concept within mold avoidance called called mold hold. If you don't know what mold hold is, it's this idea that when someone is mold toxic, they become sort of paralyzed with inaction. They can't get themselves out of the mold. They can't consider the fact that their house might be making them sick. They may go to a hundred doctors, try every single supplement, be on their deathbed, you know, be preparing their will and their estate, and they will not consider mold. And it's to the point where it's quite irrational and it has people wondering, maybe there's some biological component to this denial. And in fact, if you look at other types of microbial infections in humans, they do in fact exert mind control. And it's a scary concept, I know, but some examples include um, a parasite that is known to make mice attracted to cats. We all know that mice should not be attracted to cats. It's not in their best interest. The cat's going to win the fight and eat them. But this particular parasite makes mice attracted to cats. It's in the literature. It's not controversial. And then the parasite is able to infect the cat. So the parasite has sort of taken over the mind of the mouse and made it attracted to cats so that the parasite can benefit by getting a new host and going into a cat. Well, It's pretty clear that mold has a similar effect on people who are very toxic with mold, and we call it mold hold, mold hold, H-O-L-D, like it's holding you back. One thing that Tim Ferriss says, one of his concepts that I think may help people break out of this mold hold is this idea of fear setting. It's called fear setting, and we'll discuss what it is. And in Tim Ferriss's own words and own explanation, it's sort of a parallel reality to mold hold, except it's more like social norm dogma hold, if you will. And basically what it is, is where someone who maybe has a nine to five job that they hate, they live in a city that they hate, you know, whatever. We're not talking about health now. Tim Ferriss doesn't, this is, he doesn't mention this so much in the context of health. Just someone who's sort of stuck in a dead end life is afraid to make any changes to their situation because they're so afraid of what could go wrong, right? And, and this is common. You see people clinging to a job that they hate, a dead end nine to five job or whatever. And Tim Ferriss suggests this practice called fear setting, where you basically ask yourself, What's the worst that could happen? And this sort of frees people up to start businesses, travel, try new things, you know, get off social media and save their time for something else. It just kind of breaks you out of this bad routine, bad habit that you've dug yourself into. And he actually talks about how uh, at one point, I think quite a while ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, he used fear-setting exercises to convince himself to take some time off of a very high-pressure company that he had started and travel and sort of get some distance from his life and some perspective. And by doing that, when he came back, he completely revamped his life and made all these changes, and it was like revolutionary, right? That's pretty obvious that that could happen to us if we, you know, go to another country and we go backpacking and we leave our phone and our social media behind, all this stuff. Like, you know, of course, we're going to gain new perspective and clarity and recharge. Um, but a lot of people won't do that because they're too afraid. So he says you should do this exercise called fear setting, where you think of, you know, what's the worst case scenario? And in something like that, it's not that bad. You could just fly home if you don't like it. I mean, 
we're not talking about calamities and car accidents and stuff like that. I mean, that can happen to anyone at any time. We're talking about reasonable fears that might come true, right? Like um, likely scenarios, likely outcomes. And he also talks about how, and, and this is something that I've revisited many times through another another blogger that I really like called Mr. Money Mustache. In the first world where most of us live, um, we we don't encounter severe risks very often, right? We don't get eaten by lions. We don't, you know, fall off of buildings that are built poorly. We don't, you know, die of, you know, diseases that can be cured with antibiotics. We we don't usually have, you know, financial calamities because we are forced to have insurance for house and car and all this other stuff. But we still have the primitive brain that's developed over thousands of years as a human that is scared, fearful, as it should be, because for most of human history, you know, if you step outside, you might get eaten by a lion. So that fear is is a valid thing to have, but we don't really, it's kind of overblown, right, in this day and age. We don't really need as much fear as we often have. If you start a company, you're probably not going to die if it fails, right? So I would encourage people in in their attempt, if you're living in a moldy house right now and you can't get yourself out because you're a victim of mold hold and you can't <clears throat> really see a path out because you're too busy, you're, you know, money, all this other stuff, um, I would encourage you to do this exercise of fear setting. And by the way, I am not by any means saying that mold avoidance is easy, right? It can be tremendously hard and financially burdensome and all these other things. But we're under the assumption that most people who are listening to this podcast are probably extremely sick. They're, they have a severe chronic illness. They're going broke anyway because they're spending all this money on doctors and nothing's working. It's kind of a dead end anyway, right? Nobody's suggesting doing mold avoidance for fun, but there is an assumption that people listening to this podcast need something to change, right? So if you're not one of those people and you're you're healthy, then yeah, this probably isn't the right podcast for you. So this is the assumption that, you know, you, you have a lot to lose by sitting in your in your situation and getting worse and worse and worse every single year. That's the assumption. So I would encourage you to do some fear setting as a mental exercise <clears throat> to help yourself break out of mold hold, to help yourself see that doing what we call a mold avoidance sabbatical which is kind of the first step to healing from mold illness. I have a whole podcast episode about that. It's actually the one of the first episodes I ever uploaded. It is in my free podcast section, not the paid section. You just have to scroll all the way back to the beginning. And what's the worst that could happen if you do a mold sabbatical, right? You, you spend a couple hundred dollars on some new clothes. You maybe go to a hotel or go camping and you get clear of your house and you see if you have any symptom improvement, right? It's pretty mellow where no one's asking you to, to take a manned trip to Mars and risk your life dying in the, in the cold of outer space without any humans around you. It's not that big of a deal. And you might say, well, well, what if I come back to my house and, and I react to it, which is sort of the desired outcome of a mold sabbatical is to come back and see if you react to your house. That's kind of the clue that I always say goes all the way to the bottom of the rabbit hole. Meaning that if you do come back to your moldy house and you react to it, you probably found the jackpot of health clues. It's not just one clue. It's not just one of many. It's it's not in addition to your multivitamin. It's the clue that goes all the way to the bottom of the rabbit hole. And you might be saying, well, what if I come back to my moldy house and I do react and I have to move, right? <clears throat> Again, I think that mold makes us hyper fearful. While it is true that there is a lot of crap you have to deal with after you do a mold sabbatical, such as deciding, can I keep my house? Can I keep my belongings? Can I even live in my same city because of the outdoor super toxins? None of this stuff is third world level problems. It's not life or death. It's not tigers and lions. It's not famine. It's not drought. It just comes with this sense of dread and anxiety. And I think it has a lot to do with mold mind control. And I'm speaking from personal experience because I remember when I came back from my sabbatical 
and I reacted to my house and it was, I was horrified. I had this gut wrenching level panic and fear that accompanied that. And I'm telling you right now, it was biological. It was my compromised chronic illness state that put me in such a tizzy. Not to say it was easy. Of course, it was really hard to get out of that house. There was paperwork and remediation and selling a house and, you know, all this other stuff. But it wasn't that bad. And all you have to do is look at someone else who has to get out of their house for a different reason, right? And like someone who gets transferred for their job and they have to sell their house and do all this other stuff, right? And they're not in a state of panic. Now, I get it. I get it that mold avoidance is much harder and it's and you don't have you know, the financial help of a job and insurance and all this. I'm not saying it's not hard. What I'm saying is that in addition to the hardness of it, there is a biological panic component that is caused by the physical and neurological manifestations of mold illness. So don't get it twisted. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. <clears throat> I'm saying that there is simply a component that you need to be aware of that is caused by the biological and biochemical effects of what mold is doing to your brain. And getting out <clears throat> of the mold while it is hard and there are a lot of logistics, it's never as bad as being eaten by a lion. And it's usually something that leads us to a better life. Um, the the beginning of reestablishing stability is actually getting out of the stability you thought you had in mold. It's sort of a a conundrum. It's sort of a um it's sort of counterintuitive, right? We think that leaving our, our the stability of our home is bad. But if you really think about it, you don't really have stability in your moldy house, do you now, right? Uh, it, assuming again that you're one of those people who's chronically ill and you're listening to this podcast because you're you need some answers, right? I'm not talking to someone who's perfectly healthy. But if you are in the state of year after year decline, decay, then you know you don't have any stability. You know that you're living in a state of constant chaos and your brain fog and your, your health problems may have gotten so bad that you, you have a hard time even keeping up with your bills or, or having gainful employment. And one thing I know for, for sure, this is sort of an immutable law of physics, this is sort of inescapable. It's not something you can outsmart. You know, as humans, we like to outsmart things and plan and take control and strategize. And, and you know, if we're ready to buy a new car, we research and we go to dealers and we interview them and we look at the Kelly Blue Book value. And those are all great traits to have, those proactive traits. But one thing I know is that the slow march of decline year after year in chronic mold illness is not something you get to decide or control right? We all try. We all think, oh, next year will be better, but it ain't something you can control. In fact, one of the bits of wisdom that I heard from a mold avoidance pioneer who came before me was that mold toxicity is similar to a train speeding down the train tracks down the side of a mountain out of control. Imagine a train speeding down the side of a mountain out of control on some train tracks, the brakes stop working and it's going 70 miles an hour, 80, 90, 100, 120, 140. It's easy to see where that's going to end up. The crash might not be today and it might not be tomorrow, but at some point it's going to be a train wreck, right? Because there's no brakes on the train anymore and it's going downhill. That's how mold toxicity works. It's just a cumulative process that it creates increasing disability. And that's why most of us who ended up doing mold avoidance were literally, and I quote, I quote the mold avoidance pioneer, crawling out of our houses, sleeping in our cars. This is, this is my story as well. You know, I literally remember doing an accidental mold sabbatical 
Yeah, you know, and most of us do accidental sabbaticals because we don't really, we're not really convinced to do it on purpose. So I was away from my moldy house. I was super sick. I went down to see a doctor. I flew down, so I didn't take my car. I did have some moldy belongings with me, but it still worked. And when I came back, my, you know, I reacted horribly to my house. I was shaking in this like feverish brain fog in my bed in my moldy house. And I literally Googled, what to do if you come back from vacation and your 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 house makes you sick and by some miracle i ran across a blog post which i think has actually been taken down from an experienced mold avoider who had learned mold avoidance and they wrote this article um on 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 a sabbatical and i was like oh my gosh this is me and i tried to go sleep in the other room at that time we had a baby and me and my wife were not sleeping in the same room because my wife was up with the baby a lot and I was too sick to even function. So there's no way I could take care of a baby. It was a very sad time. So I woke my wife up in the middle of the night and I said, can can I please switch bedrooms with you? There's something wrong with my my bedroom, right? And she said, okay. So her and the baby went in the other bedroom and I went in her bedroom. And it, I kind of knew. I was like, I don't think this is gonna work. I think I think my house is the problem. And so I, I couldn't immediately, even in the other bedroom, I, I still couldn't sleep. It was zero, zero, zero potential to sleep. So guess what I did? I crawled out of my house. Not literally. I wasn't. I didn't have the kind of debilitation that I was physically crawling on my, my hands and knees. But I proverbially crawled out of my house and I got in my wife's minivan and I reclined the chair and I tried to go to sleep. It was like 4 a.m. And I basically never set foot in my house again. I had friends and my wife, we cleaned it out, we got rid of the belongings, we remediated the house, um, and uh, um, we sold it, we re- I think we rented it first and then we sold it, and we fully disclosed that there was a known mold problem that we had remediated. And you know, some people just aren't, aren't mold sensitive, at least they, you know, they're okay with buying a house that has had a mold problem, but we, we disclosed everything, and Anyway, that the rest is history. But the point is that people cannot see a way out. And even when this happens to them, they experience this fear and this dread of leaving their house. And I believe it's mold hold, which is a biological process. And it's important to be aware of this process and do the fear setting exercise where you tell yourself, okay, I'm gonna do a mold sabbatical, I might have to leave my house, but it's gonna be okay. You know, at the end of the day, mold avoiders who are doing mold avoidance in first world countries, like the United States, it's gonna be okay. Yeah, it's gonna be hard. Yeah, there's gonna be some challenges and this and that. And this brings me to one of the statements that one of my mentors told me that I literally have stuck in my head and I've remembered it verbatim and I think about it all the time. Listen, guys, if you don't have a mold avoidance mentor who you're listening to and pondering everything they say, you're doing something wrong. Um, I have quotes from my mold avoidance mentors burned into my memory and some of them are so profound that it it has layers of wisdom. Like one week I'll be like, oh, this means this. And the next week I'll be like, oh, it also means this. It's it's quite profound, right? It's like a quote from Steve Jobs about the iPhone or something. Like you're like, wow, this guy was a real visionary. And this quote is only a couple of words. My mentor told me, yeah, well, you will be able to muddle through. Muddle through means meaning kind of just work your way through muddling through just kind of basically scrape scratch figure out your way through it's not going to be pretty you're going to muddle through and let's take those two words muddling and through right this is so profound to me the word through means you're going to make it through you're going to go through from point a to point b that's encouraging to know that i'm going to get through it and muddling means it's not really going to be pretty. Like muddling through, I sort of picture like some animal that's not all that limber, not all that athletic. We're not talking about a cheetah or a deer here. We're talking about like a raccoon or, you know, a little fat, you know, bunny or something just kind of waddling his way through an obstacle course. He's getting through, but it's not very pretty. 
that's what mold avoidance is like. You get to muddle through. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get contaminated. You're going to accidentally get into a house that's moldy. But you know what? It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. At the end of the day, you're going to be okay. You're going to get through. And the way you're going to get through is you're going to muddle through. You're going to take a supplement that you thought was okay, but after you get unmasked, you're going to realize it was actually moldy and you're going to get a mold hit. Oh, well, you're going to muddle through, right? You're going to accident. I mean, that's what mold avoidance skills really is. It's, it's, that's what any skill is, right? Mountain biking. When you crash on your mountain bike, hopefully at a slow speed wearing a helmet, right? We want to be safe here. You're going to learn. You're going to go, oh, well, I, I shouldn't have done that. That's why I crashed. And that's what mold avoidance is. You're going to crash a lot. The goal is to make the crashes uh, affordable, cheap, financially speaking, and iterative. Iter- an iteration means that you can improve what you did over and over again. This is why uh, I love the story of one of my mentors who, in order to learn mold avoidance skills, he pared down all of his belongings to a rental car and some Walmart clothes. And it eliminated all risk and all fear because he was like, well, okay, we went into some really bad toxins. Oh, well, we'll swap out the rental car or, oh, well, we'll get some new Walmart clothes. And I realize not everybody can do mold avoidance at that extreme of a level. But again, we don't make up the rules. That's another fact of mold avoidance is we don't decide how it's going to go. So he was just submitting himself to the rules of mold avoidance, which actually makes life a lot easier. It's like like the 10-year-old that doesn't submit to the rules of gravity and puts on a Batman cape and jumps off their roof and breaks their leg. Well, that was kind of dumb. You really want to believe in gravity so that you don't break your leg. That's kind of how mold avoidance rules are. You, you really don't want to be the one that, that doesn't respect the rules. But you're going to muddle through. Two words, muddle and through. You're going to get through it, and it's going to be a lot of muddling. You're going to be a overweight bunny rabbit working his way through an obstacle course to the other side. You're going to get hung up. Your leg is going to get stuck. Your head isn't going to fit through the hole. Whatever happens, it's not always going to be pretty. It's not always going to be easy. But there's some comfort in knowing that you can muddle through, and it's not the end of the world. None of this stuff is the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's going to be ups and downs, but none of it is third world country level stuff. You're not being chased by a cartel. You're not, you know, drinking water that's not clean from a third world country. You're not in the midst of a, you know, civil war. Um, it's you're just muddling through, and it it sort of helps to frame it as, uh, you know, he, here's here's what I'll leave you with. And, and hopefully I'm just reframing the experience of mold avoidance so you can take a deep breath and stop with the panic and the anxiety over the situation. Because I'm telling you, the panic and the anxiety is a biological consequence of the mold damaging your brain. It's really not that big of a deal. It's not that deep, as my, my teenager tells me. It's not that deep, Dad. So let's think about it like this, okay? Have you ever heard of, let's say, a college student or an 18-year-old or 20-something who only has $10 to their name, they don't really want to get a job, they kind of want to couch surf with their buddies and play their guitar and experience the world or whatever, and they just sort of muddle through. They maybe go to a city for a little while, visit a friend, you know, work at a coffee shop, wash some dishes, make a hundred bucks, put fill up their car with a tank of gas, go find a campground to sleep in for the night, you know, make friends with somebody new at the campground, go on a hike, you know, all this stuff that young people do. You know, you and I probably did that when we were 18 or 20. Um, we were this, this, you know, easy go lucky, just chill person really young, just, you know, not a care in the world, muddling through some sort of a backpacking road trip adventure in an old broken down car, right? Now, I get it. I get it. We don't want to do that again. I'm 45. You're 32, 27, 59, whatever. We're like, oh, that doesn't sound so good. I don't really want to be that guy again. No, I get it. But it's still not that bad. It's not that bad. If that's what it takes to heal chronic illness is a little bit of limbo because one of the worst things you can do as a mold avoider is go straight into another high 
commitment financial situation where you're so desperate for stability that you take the step of getting out of your moldy house, but you go buy another house. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. You really want to have a middle period where you're not committed strongly financially because that is the thing that actually will ruin you. If you want to talk about a real risk in mold avoidance, the real tiger, the real lion, the real problem, it is getting yourself into a, into a bad financial situation after you leave your moldy house because you are clinging to this idea of wanting to go straight back into stability, right? That's where the big dollar signs come in. That's where the big dollar signs come in. You buy the wrong house or you sign a really long committed lease and you bring your moldy belongings and you're detoxing and you're, you know, it's just a bad idea to do that right away. So the idea of sort of being a flexible uh, college student or graduate with no money and just sort of muddling through life um, is 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 not that bad, right? I'm not saying it's your first choice. I'm not saying it's your first choice, but it's not that bad. It could be worse. Uh, one of my mentors described it as like a Lord of the Rings adventure. Like, you know, Frodo has to go to all these villages and figure out all these new skills, how to take care of the ring, how to do this, how to do that. It's kind of like an adventure. And there's ways to make it an adventure that really aren't that bad. They're just different than what you're used to. You know, I, I have to remind myself that a lot of Americans actually go on a one or two year RV road trip for fun, meaning that they actually save up for you know years to be able to take a year off their job or quit their job to take their family on this dream trip where they go to all these different locations all over the US in an RV. Like that's actually like a goal for some people. And when we did our first year or two of mold avoidance, that's exactly what we did. We got an RV and we traveled and we learned mold avoidance skills. And yeah, yeah, there were some restrictions. We couldn't go to really moldy cities. Um, there was, of course, the mold avoidance circus that I call it, where you're you're kind of, you know, it, it's not just pure fun. You're, you're in a lot of challenges, right? You're muddling through. But my only point is that the act of doing a mold avoidance road trip is not that bad. It's not... Um, like getting diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's just something you're not really used to. And the mold mind control, the mold hold, the biological damage is just telling you that it's so horrible and you should never do it. You should just sit in your moldy sick house. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's not that bad. And it wasn't even that bad financially because once we got rid of our house, uh, we didn't have house bills anymore. So instead of paying $3,000 a month for property taxes, insurance, uh, rent, mortgage, utility bills, repairs, hot water heater repairs, we were paying for a, an RV payment and gas and, you know, a, an RV mechanic to come out and fix the RV. And And you don't even have to do RV mold avoidance. That's just one way to do it. You know, I talk a lot about how I am... Um, ambivalent toward which route people use for mold avoidance, whether it's a hotel or a rental car or a short-term lease or an Airbnb or traveling with your boyfriend to uh, Croatia or, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But it's just not that bad. Fear setting, fear setting says, what's the worst that could happen? Okay, I sell my house. All right, I probably will never regret that because um, because it was making me sick. So, okay, that's not that big of a deal. I sell my house, right? I buy an RV and I go on a mold avoidance road trip. Okay, the worst that can happen, I'm not going to get eaten by a tiger. So again, I would encourage you to do the exercise of fear setting, which is to think about the worst case scenario and realize it's not that bad as a way to help you get unstuck in mold hold and in this irrational panic of change. And and I brought up, just as a summary and in conclusion here, I brought up uh, two mind exercises, two examples to think about. One would be someone who's being relocated for work. They have to abandon their house. They have to abandon their city. They're just going somewhere else to work, right? It's not that big of a deal. People do it all the time. But why as mold avoiders are we in such a 
a state of panic if we have to abandon our house and maybe our city due to outdoor mold supertoxins. When people do this all the time, they get their job transfers them to a new city. And yes, it might suck. Yes, they might miss people. There's all these, you know, bad things, but it's not as bad as what we of the panic that we're feeling. So that's example number one. Example number two was a college student or a young person, 20 somethings who has one hundred and nine dollars and 40 cents to their name. And they spend a few years, you know, bouncing around, you know, sleeping in their car, working at a campground, you know, whatever. In fact, many people would say those are the best memories of their life doing that, right? A lot of people would say, oh my gosh, you know, once you get locked into the routine in your 30s and 40s and the bills and the this and the kids soccer and everything, a lot of people are like, oh, those were such fun days. You know, um, my dad went to Europe for, I believe, like six to eight weeks or maybe months, I don't remember, and lived out of a van, drove around Europe in a van with his guitar and would open the door to the van and sit down on the asphalt and play his guitar all throughout Europe. This is my dad. This is a true story. And when my dad came back to the United States, he had like a two foot long beard and they wouldn't even let him in the country because they thought he was like some kind of terrorist. True, true story. He, he, took a, he couldn't afford a plane ticket, so he took a freighter, like a six week boat ride back to the US and didn't take a shower. And the immigration you know, passport office was like, whoa, we're gonna detain you for a while. This is a true story of my dad. And he did that for fun. So again, just to reiterate for the Karens in the back who are gonna be yelling and, and you know, being Karens, um, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it is always fun. I'm not saying that it's ideal. All I'm saying is that the sense of panic and fear that most people have surrounding the process of mold avoidance is exaggerated and it is driven by mold hold and a biological desire that the mold has to not get healthy, right? Just like that parasite inside the mouse is attracted to cats. So it's driving the cat, the, the mouse to do something that's not in its own best interest, right? Like we, this is in the, in the scientific literature. This isn't controversial, the mouse is going to seek out the cat, right? Like it's going to go get eaten. It's going to go get itself eaten. And that's what you're doing in your moldy house. You're, you're letting yourself get eaten by the mold because your brain is compromised by the mold. It's that simple. End of story. Next topic. Moving on. Case closed right? And, you know, I always got to say my little disclaimer here. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a professional mold remediator. I'm not your counselor. I don't really know if you should leave your house. Maybe you'll regret it. Maybe you'll be happier being sick year in and year out and spending all your money on doctors. That's the funny thing, right? Is people are going to spend, people are going to be broke anyway. How many chronically ill people do you know who are in good financial shape? If you're not spending your money on mold avoidance, you're spending your money on doctors anyway right? And it's not getting better. It's not getting better. You're spending more money on doctors each year, right? It's not, it's not getting, you're not, you're not getting rich. You're not getting rich. And sure, if you're someone who let's say is in a six figure job and you have a work project to finish up, and if you stay at your job another year, you're going to get a $300,000 bonus then yeah, I would stay another year and in delay leaving your house and doing mold avoidance. Like, obviously, I'm not an idiot, right? Like, there are extenuating circumstances. This is, this is a your mileage may vary podcast. Don't just listen to me. Use your own brain in the situation. You know, I was talking to a mold avoider yesterday, and they were saying, oh, I really want to go try out this location because it's a great location, but my, I can't because my husband has a job and he's tied to this certain area. He can't leave the area, you know? And I was like, yeah, don't let your husband quit that job. Absolutely keep the job. You need money. You need to do, you need financial stability to do mold avoidance. You can't, you can't just quit a job without a plan. So I'm not some, you know, bumbling fool who just doesn't see the reality of it. But everybody's situation is a little bit different and you have to optimize the variables for your own situation. It's a little bit of a, of a juggling act. It's, it's not, it, there's some intellectual gymnastics you have to go through to optimize your own plan. This is why some people may choose to do 
hotel mold avoidance because they don't have time to set up an RV and deal with campgrounds and all this stuff and they have a job and they're like, I need a hotel room where I can set up my laptop, do work calls, have reliable Wi-Fi and, and that's totally fine. You should do that. You should do that. You can learn mold avoidance skills and heal in hotels. The key is that you are, are not locked in right? That's the key to mold avoidance is that you're not locked into any one city location or shelter in the first year or two. And I know this is hard and this blows people out of the water and they're like, oh, that's so weird. I can't live like that. What would I do? And all I have to say is, well, do you want to keep living like this? Do you want to keep having this chronic illness? Because it's kind of up to you. If you want to keep living like this, then do it. No one's stopping you. It's a free country, right? You're listening to a podcast. You're not being, you're not being coerced into something. I'm not, you know, showing up at your house, forcing you to do mold avoidance. This is just freedom of speech here. I'm expressing something. And the reason that it's making you squirm and making you uncomfortable isn't me. It isn't me. It's you because you're wrestling with this and realizing, hmm, maybe he's right. Maybe there's some truth to this. You're the one who's wrestling with this idea and debating it and and, and delving into the pros and cons. It's not me. It's not me. It's you, right? Taylor Swift song. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Well, in this case, it's you. You're wrestling with this because you know it's something you need to think about. You know it's something you need to think about. And, and there's that transition to being comfortable, you know, and I'll leave, I could talk about this forever. You know, this is, I'm getting, I'm, I'm on a roll here and it's dangerous when I'm on a roll. Cause I might end up keeping you guys here for a whole hour. And I don't like to keep people in my podcast for an hour. Although I will say <clears throat> it's worth it to listen to long podcasts. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I've been getting back into the Tim Ferriss show. That's the name of his podcast, the Tim Ferriss show. The funniest thing happened to me. I listened to one of my favorite episodes of the Tim Ferriss show last year, it's, a, it's an interview with, with Jim Collins, who's, who's the author of one of my favorite books called Good to Great. It's like a two and a half hour um, interview. And so, it did something bad to me. Of course, a lot of good things too, but it did something bad to me. Every time I would listen to it, I've listened to it maybe five or six times, that one episode, Jim Collins, Good to Great, it's from uh, October of 2021, I think, or 2022. And I listened to it like five times and I, and it was so good that I never felt like I had listened to it enough times. I was always like, oh my gosh, I got to listen to it again because it's so good. And I was always driving, so I couldn't take notes. And it was like, oh, how do I internalize all this great information? And it gave me a little bit of like a complex, like a, like a stumbling block, because I was like, now I can't listen to any other Tim Ferriss episodes at all until I absorb every detail of this one great episode. And so I was like, I might as well not even listen to Tim Ferriss at all. It's too frustrating. And then I came to a point where I said, you know what? I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to just listen to all the episodes that I can possibly listen to. And I'm not going to stress out about if I remember everything or take notes or internalize all the information perfectly. I'm just going to go with the flow. And it's been really enjoyable taking that, that tact. I, I still do feel the frustration sometimes of driving and not being able to take notes. But it's been really enjoyable just to put on the episodes, absorb as much as I can, and just sort of let it affect me by osmosis, passive osmosis, rather than actively taking notes and, you know, be, being being obsessive about every detail and memorizing every little thing in the podcast. And the reason I bring up that story is that a lot of the Tim Ferriss episodes are two and a half hours long. I'm not exaggerating. They're literally two and a half hours long. And I don't mind it one bit at all. I, I don't mind it. Um, especially since my family's been doing these longer road trips now. I'm often in the car for three, four, five, six hours. It does not bother me at all. But I will apologize if you don't have a long drive because long podcast episodes without a long drive may be, may be sort of annoying. But anyway, I hope this episode has helped you to realize that um, there's probably more at stake um, by not taking action with your mold, right? I, I made an episode maybe two years ago called The Butterfly Effect in Mold Avoidance. The butterfly effect is 
that famous physicist or someone proposed that if a butterfly flaps its wings, then the little bit of wind that it creates compounds and turns into a hurricane on the other side of the planet, right? I don't know if that's the correct scientific way to frame it. I'm not a physicist, but that was basically the the gist of it, that um, the butterfly flaps its wings and creates this this spiraling, you know, snowball effect. And that's kind of like what uh, not doing mold avoidance or not dealing with mold problems does. You may not see it at first, but the progression of chronic illness is so absolutely devastating. And let's be real here. I, I, I'm sorry to tell you, but the longer you stay in mold and the more toxic you become, it does become harder to reverse. Mold avoidance still works, but you have to do more mold avoidance and you have to get more clear to get the benefit. Um, this is this is why, and I will quote another mentor, mentor phrases that have been burned into my brain. This is why um, one of the founders of mold avoidance has said, if you don't get clear enough, you might stay like this forever, right? And And it begs the question, what is clear enough? Well, if you catch mold toxicity early, you might just be able to move out of your moldy house and move down the street and that would be enough. But if you get sick enough, you might have to do what we call tent in the desert detox, which doesn't really necessarily mean you have to be in a tent. It's just a saying that shows that you have to be really, really clear of mold for the switch to click on. And this is also sort of where the phrase adequately clear of mold came from. The phrase adequately clear of mold is 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 different for everybody, right? It may be, you may need to be more clear than someone else to be adequately clear. So there's this butterfly effect that if you don't do it, it might be even worse. And and there's, you know, there's so many examples of this in life where where there's subtle problems that seem like they're better than the alternative, but they really aren't. I'll give you another example. I mean, shit, this is already going to be a, a one hour podcast. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna not fight with it anymore. It's just, it's just gonna go. Um, gaining weight, obesity. Uh, I, I was, I was about mm, 200 pounds last year and I've lost about 12 pounds now and I've managed to keep it off, which I'm pretty proud of because in the context of mold avoidance, it's hard to keep weight off. Sometimes you have all these food cravings and sugar cravings. But I, I started to follow this guy on TikTok, uh, Chris Terrell. I really recommend his content. Um, and he was saying that emotional eating or overeating compounds the problem, right? Because usually someone's emotionally eating because of stress or, you know, unresolved trauma or they just, you know, that's just what they, how they learned how to cope with their life. Um, and it works in the short term. You should bear with me on this. This is a good. This is a good concept. I'm I'm hitting here. It works in the short term, right? You have a really stressful day at work. You get in a fight with your spouse. Uh, you don't want to think about your bills, so you're like, I'm just gonna have you know, a couple slices of pizza and and you know, it doesn't even have to, <clears throat> have to be junk food. Just whatever. I'm gonna I'm gonna satisfy myself with, um, you know, food, right? And it works. It does work. It, it emotional eating works. You get the dopamine and all the nutrients in the food and you just feel so good. But Chris Terrell's point is that over time you create a second problem. Now, you still have the same fights with your spouse, you still have the same work stress, but now you also weigh 350 pounds and it's really hard to come back from that. I never got that big. I, I was only slightly overweight. Um, I, you know, I, my ideal weight is maybe 175 and I was 200 and now I'm like halfway to my goal of 175, but I was like, it's like, crap, I kind of feel weird. You know, I was like, I kind of feel like it, it didn't even feel like I was fat. It's funny. Cause like we tell ourselves stories, right? We tell ourselves stories. And when I was fat, when I was 200 pounds, um, I was like, I didn't even know that I was fat. I really didn't. I didn't feel fat. I just felt weird. I was like, why is it that my neck doesn't turn the same way that it used to? Do I need to go to a chiropractor? I was like, my neck kind of feels like it's big. You know, it was kind of funny. And then I was like, when I walk, I kind of feel like there's like this midsection area around my stomach. I wonder what that is. It didn't even occur. To, it didn't feel fat. Right. Um, 
and and that's a whole nother topic about not forcing weight loss during mold avoidance. And I, I'm not I'm not prescribing this for anyone. This was just me, my own personal thing. But the point is that it created a secondary problem over time that didn't even solve the primary problem. So in other words, overeating for most Americans doesn't solve the primary problem. They still have bills that they can't pay. They still fight with their spouse. But now they have bills that they can't pay and they fight with their spouse and they're overweight, right? And so that's very much how living in a moldy house is. You think, and I hope I hope you find it worth it to listen this long at almost 50 minutes because this is solid gold right here. You think that staying in the mold is solving the problem. You're like, oh, well, I get to not do mold avoidance. It's so great. I get to stay in my house. I get to have my stability. I'm not doing that crazy stuff, right? And it does work temporarily, just like overeating works temporarily. But eventually, oh my gosh, the wind is insane here. It's so insane. feels like it's going to blow my windows in. But eventually, now you have... The same problems you used to have in your house, you're fighting with your spouse, you're, um, you have bills to pay, you know, the kids have homework, whatever, and you're more chronically ill than you were last year. So it's a very similar, I hope you see the, the parallel here, it's a very similar thing where, you know, going on a diet and, and watching counting calories, I loved learning how to count calories. You don't have to do that to lose weight. It's not the only way, but I loved it because I wanted to know. I was a food valuist. I call it being a food valuist where I wanted to know if this particular thing that I was eating was going was gonna, to uh, take up like 600 calories of my, of my food for the day, right? I wanted to know if it was worth it. And there were some times where I would find a meal that was 600 calories and I would be like, that was so worth it. I feel so satisfied. That was great. Um, uh, one of my, one of my weight loss mentors calls it foods that make you tick, tick like a clock, right? Like foods that make you tick. You want to find the foods that make you tick, the important foods that satisfy you. They feel good to you. You know, you eat them. They're, they're, they're great. And like one of the things is this, this frozen gluten-free pot pie that is, uh, 350 calories. And I, when I eat that thing, I feel good. It fills me up. If I eat two of them, I'm stuffed. That's a great use of 700 calories because I feel good. But on the other hand, I realized that peanut butter, right? Of course, I should have known this. Like, what, what do animals do to fatten up for the winter? They eat nuts. But peanut butter, even though it was organic, even though it has omega-3s, even though it has all this other stuff, it is not a food that makes me tick. I can eat 700 calories of peanut butter, and it's and I feel just as hungry as I did before, maybe even more hungry, and I want more peanut butter. So there was this one time where I started to go backwards in my weight loss journey, and I realized it was because I was eating peanut butter again. And, and I, I just couldn't, I can't eat peanut butter. It's not, it's not for me. It's not a good thing for me. Um, it's like, I'm a chipmunk and it makes me fat for the winter, you know? Um, and so you, 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 I really liked calorie counting because I could really see in real time what foods make me tick. I'll give you another example. Blueberries, frozen blueberries, fantastic food for maintaining or losing weight for me may not be for you. But a bag of Walmart frozen organic blueberries, first of all, they feel really good to me, they're, they're clear. A bag, a whole bag is 140 calories. And sometimes I would eat two bags, that's 280 calories. And the amount of chewing and bulk and fiber and satisfaction making me feel good, feel nourished for 280 calories, record-breaking, out of this world, you know, best thing ever for me. And I wanted to know that. I like counting calories. It was building a skill, like a mold avoidance skill. So that now that I don't really count calories anymore, I do want to lose another 10 pounds, but I, it's just so, you have to have like a routine and a daily routine. And my kids were really busy with school at that time last year when I was losing weight. So I had this like window of like a month. And I know now I know I have that skill. I can do it anytime I want. It's really cool to know that you have a skill. I'm like, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'm just in maintenance mode right now. And I'm proud of myself. You know, I've kept every single pound off. And the one time that I did gain two or three pounds back, um, I was horrified by that because then I had to lose them again, weight that I had already lost. I hate 
losing weight that I've already lost. It, it absolutely drove me crazy. So I'm like, you know what? I'm never, ever, ever going to gain two or three pounds again, ever, because it's just not worth it to have to lose the same weight twice. And I have stuck to that more or less. You know, I started at about 200 pounds and I'm, I'm at like 187 now. Um, and so anyway, I have the skill now of weight maintenance weight loss and weight maintenance. I have that skill. I know it. I'm proud of it. You can't take it away from me. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I learned it. I learned it. It took some some effort. It took commitment. It took being curious and humble and listening to mentors. It took all this stuff, right? And um, and now I have that skill. And, and I know that when I want to lose the next 12 pounds, which will get me to my target weight of 175, I do, I'm not even worried about it at all. And that makes my life better because now I maybe have a fight with my spouse and now I maybe have bills to pay still, but at least I don't have the problem of weight loss. So do you see how the analogy works, right? If you live in a moldy house and you don't get out, um, you have a problem like weight, weight gain that, that is maybe feels good in the short term, but in the long term, it's, it's a big problem. So staying in the moldy house is not necessarily an easy way out. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's just building a secondary problem that you're going to have to deal with later. So I, you, know, you see what I'm saying? That, that last 10 minutes talking about weight loss is, it was not arbitrary. It really ties in. It's a great analogy to uh, mold avoidance and staying in a moldy house longer. It's, it's not an easy way to just make the problem go away. Okay, I could go on. I've only had one Celsius today, 200 milligrams of caffeine. I usually make these podcast episodes after like two or three Celsius, but today was was a one banger and that's pretty good. So I will end it here. Um, just my normal little disclaimer that I'm not a doctor. I'm not a mold remediation specialist. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a weight loss expert. I'm not an R- uh, RV expert. I'm nobody. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a, a mold illness patient who's very grateful for my recovery that I have experienced and I'm trying to share what I learned. Also, as part of the, this disclaimer, uh, none of the mold avoidance skills that I've learned were invented by me. I like to be careful not to take any credit. I have learned from mentors and I don't take credit for any of this information. I just enjoy sharing it because it's super meaningful and uh, it's rare in life to be able to participate in something that's really meaningful. Most of the time we spend our lives you know, doing mundane stuff. So it's enjoyable. So disclaimers aside, hope everybody has a great day. Thanks for listening.